All right, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the very last chapter of the book of Genesis, um, Genesis chapter 50, and I'm going to read from verses 15 to 26. Uh, By my count, which I think is accurate, because I have all these, of course, saved on my computer, this is the 52nd sermon in Genesis. It's also the last one. And so we have literally devoted a year of Sundays to the book of Genesis. There are different ways of, um, of preaching books. Normally I, I, here we don't preach this long through books. Normally we do either smaller series or medium series. Like a school year would be our longest normally. But the reason I wanted to do this is because we have that liberty on Sunday nights, I think. And, and I wanted to try to convince you as we walked along that no matter how long you take on a book, you're still always going to learn something new and see something new about the Lord. I, we could have taken two years on Genesis. And we still would have come every night finding something amazing. And I hope I convinced you of that. I hope I didn't convince you of the opposite, that that was too long, Stan, and you need to rein yourself in next time. Um, After this week, we will be starting a new series, and I'm excited about it. It's called Your Word in My Heart, where we're going to look at different practices and ways of thinking about the Bible and using it in your life. Please come next week as we launch a whole new thing. We're going to be focusing on Psalm 119. So if you like poetry, and you like God, and you like King David, and you like the Bible, this is the place for you. Sunday nights. All right, let me read Genesis 50, verses 15 to 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The word of the Lord and the end of Joseph's life. Last time we were together, we looked at chapter 49, and we saw the end of Jacob's life. And that was an amazing thing, because Jacob was an old man dying physically, breaking down. He couldn't see or hear or any of that. He couldn't move. He could barely get up in his bed. And yet he used all the strength he had left to bless his children and grandchildren. It was a heroic example of faith. Well, I told you at that time, wait till you get to Joseph. 
Because the way Joseph ends his story is even more grand and beautiful. I would call it downright heroic. Something to aim at. Now, there are different reasons why people are considered heroes. What are some of the usual reasons why people are considered heroes in this world? Bravery. Bravery. That's one of the most common, right? The troops and you know, being brave against danger. What else? You do something no one else is willing to do. Now, those are usually the types of things, right? Heroic feats, usually of physical strength of some kind or physical, like tangible uh, bravery in the face of danger. Uh, when you come to the Bible, you find something a little bit different. Yeah, in a sense, um, in the Bible, in a sense, there really is only one hero. In the truest sense. Uh, God, the Bible is relentlessly about God. And it's relentlessly about Jesus Christ. And in a sense, he's the only hero. But yet, when you come to the Bible, you see all these people who set really, well, I would call them heroic examples. And yet, their, their reason why they're heroic is not some great feats of strength. It's not hardly that they're so brave in facing danger. Uh, in, in fact, a lot of times these people are quite timid and quite afraid half of their life. Uh, the reason why in the Bible you have these other heroes is that they're really good at trusting God. That's different. That's different, isn't it? Uh, to be really good at trusting God doesn't, you know, in the first glance, seem to be heroic to the world. And yet, you see it in Joseph's life. Because trust in God is most beautifully displayed in the face of adversity. Joseph is showing how his trust in God wasn't undone by adversity. It was actually somehow made stronger. Somehow it was made stronger. And here he goes, living the end of his days, displaying forgiveness and generosity and grace in such an amazing way that you think, I want to be like that. I want to learn how to face adversity this way. And I think the words that he says, especially there, if you look at your Bible again, the words he says in verses 19 through 21 help us. They're kind of like a little guide for how to prepare yourself to trust God in adversity and how to come out on the other side of adversity still trusting in God and displaying God in that way. We only, we'll only have time to touch on each of these, but you'll see in your bulletin I've uh, kind of picked out the various phrases of um, Joseph's heroic speech to his brothers, and we'll talk about them each in turn. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. I will provide for you. Y'all ready? Let's look first of all at am I in the place of God? This is a beautiful little question there at the beginning. Now, Answer me this. Why were, at the beginning of the passage in verse 15, why were the uh, Joseph's brothers afraid all of a sudden? There you go. Yeah, so we've already had a reconciliation. So you might wonder, okay, well, why, why are they once again asking for forgiveness? We've already been here. Joseph gave them a seat at the table, remember? He gave a you know, five times portion to Benjamin. He, he wept already, and it seemed like everything was cool. But now all of a sudden they're falling down on their face again. Oh, forgive us, because dad is dead. Uh, it says, when Jacob died, the brothers wondered. Maybe Joseph was just putting it on a face, uh, because who, want, I mean, who wants to treat their old, old parent that way, where you, the siblings just start killing each other while your dad is dying. So maybe he's just holding out, and now that dad is dead, he's coming after us. And so they come to him with this second request for forgiveness. This is the second time they've come and 
sort of humbled themselves, begging Joseph not to hold against them the evil, the totally evil thing that they had done to him all those years before. Now, it's interesting how Joseph responds to the request. And you've you got to kind of think about this this evening. Maybe you can go back in your mind to a time when someone apologized to you for something pretty serious. Maybe you can imagine it if, if that hasn't happened recently and you can't remember. How do you respond or how did you respond when someone apologized about something serious? What, what's a typical response to something like that? How is it different than the way Joseph there in, uh, uh, in which verse is it there? Um, verse 17, you know, what, what's different about how Joseph responds in verse 17? Yeah. It says he wept when his brothers spoke to him. He wept. And then the first words out of his mouth, verse 19, do not fear. That different? How so? Right, yeah, that's right. You're usually kind of banking on them being the weeper, you know. And it doesn't, it doesn't say whether they wept or not, but it certainly doesn't mention that they do. So you would imagine, um, as the person who's been offended, you want to see them cry. You would like to see them squirm a little bit. Um, however, there's none of that in Joseph. None of that. Um, Joseph melts every time. He's confronted by his brother's sin against him. He had done it before. Remember, he just wept. He had to leave the room. When they didn't know who he was, he had to leave the room because he couldn't contain his weeping. And here it is again. Uh, they're coming to say, oh, Joseph, don't kill us. <laughs> don't hold it against us. Please find it in your heart to forgive us. They even say, we are your servants, which is another way of saying, we'll do anything. It's a pretty awesome apology, actually. We'll do anything. We'll do whatever it takes to... Make up for what we did to you. And yet the only response Joseph has is weeping and a simple message of don't be afraid. I don't know about you, but I find that very unusual. And it makes me ask, why is it unusual? What makes him respond in such an unusual way? And that's where the question comes in. Right after he says, do not be afraid, he connects it with this idea. In fact, it's the same sentence. Do not fear, comma, for. Don't be afraid, for. Am I in the place of God? Uh, we, we've seen this question before in Genesis. You may not remember. You, I, in fact, you probably don't, but because it, it was all the way back in chapter 30. It was in the scene where Jacob, newly married, had a conversation with Rachel, his wife. And Rachel was unable to have a child. And so she comes to Jacob and beats on his chest and says, Give me children or I shall die. Remember that scene? Give me children. And Jacob says the same thing. Am I in the place of God? Now, I think understanding that one helps you understand what Jacob, Joseph means here. Well, what did Jacob mean? It was it's pretty obvious, right? Am I the womb opener? Am I the womb closer? Am, am I the one that you know, can produce children and bring them to term and bring them healthy into the world? Of course, only God can do that. Why are you asking me? Why are you making demands of me that I cannot meet? 
Why are you treating me as if I'm in a different position than I actually am? Well, Joseph takes that same phrase on his lips because when he hears his brothers grovel and say, I'll do anything, whatever it takes, forgive me, as if Joseph might not be willing to forgive him, Joseph's response is, of course I'll forgive you. Am I in the place of God? Somebody tell me, what's the connection between recognizing God in his place and being able to gracefully handle adversity and specifically forgiveness in the light of adversity? What's the connection? Clint? Yeah, right. Um, exactly right. So, go, Alex? Is he trying? He said, I've forgiven you. Right. You need to also direct your repentance to God. Of course, yeah. Yeah, there is, there is both of those things going on, right? So, yes. Did his brothers uh, sin against him? Of course. He's about to say in just a minute that they did, and he acknowledges that. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, does Joseph need to forgive them? Yes. Um, is there more, though, to the situation than just Joseph being able to forgive his brothers? Yes. Because there is a God. There is a God who rules not only Joseph, but the brothers, and all the world, in fact, every human, a God who is the one who will bring ultimate justice into the world. In fact, he's the only one that can bring ultimate justice because we're missing some of the key things as humans that prevent us from being able to carry out ultimate justice in any situation. What are we missing? Well, all knowledge. All power. Um, wisdom that is able to judge fairly in every single case. We try, and we should try. We should try hard. And God tells us, love justice, do justice, love mercy. But in that verse where it says, do justice, love mercy, you know what it says next? Walk humbly with your God. Uh, you know, you can't have the two without the other. Uh, you have to recognize as humans that no matter what we do in forgiving and in, and in holding people accountable, all of which we should do, we should never, ever write God out of the picture. Uh, it, it's a medicine to the soul when you are dealing with adversity. In fact, I'll tell you, there's no other way to prepare to deal with adversity except this medicine. To recognize that God has a place, and so do you. And the two are not the same. God has a place, and so do they. And the two are not the same. Joseph can't be in the place of God. His brothers can't be in the place of God. Only God can be in the place of God. And so Joseph's deep conviction about God's sovereign rule and God's fair and righteous government over all of life is something that helps him when he's looking at the situation of proximate justice between him and his brothers. It helps him sort through it. Now, we've been with Joseph for a while in this series, so we know this didn't always come easy. There, there must have been moments where Joseph didn't understand this or where he struggled to understand this. But tonight, we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on how it ended. 
We're focusing on how Joseph somehow came out of adversity beautiful. And one of the key steps was that he had learned long before that he cannot and will not ever be in the place of God. Remember when you were a kid, all the bullies at school seemed so big and so scary. Remember? Wow, no one can beat them. No one's ever going to beat them. From time to time, I get a chance to go to my daughter's school and visit the class. I look around at those kids, and I know that some of the kids sitting in there are the bullies. I don't know which ones they are all the time, but I know that they're in there mixed in, and I think, these are babes. Why was I afraid? Of course, I didn't know it at the time. I couldn't have known it at the time because I, I was seeing it from my daughter's perspective. That's where I was. But now, what's changed? I've changed. I'm looking down. These, these little guys, they're no threat to me at all. It was a whole lot different before I recognized their relative smallness. Joseph, when he was in pr prison, when he was in the pit, when he was in Potiphar's house, slaving away, when he was in Pharaoh's house, doing Pharaoh's bidding, all along the way, what, one of the things that God was helping Joseph do was to see every situation in his, in his life in, in light of God. In light of the greater government of God. It's a remarkable thing. Somehow, Joseph was embedded in the imperial government of Egypt. And he didn't walk away thinking Pharaoh was God. He walked away knowing God is God. And he was second in command. And somehow, he didn't walk away thinking he was God. That's rare. Most of the time, people get into power, they walk away thinking, I believe I might be God. Right? That's the way power has an effect on a human heart. Somehow, God, God has had this sanctifying work in Joseph's life to so where he's able to say, boys, brothers, I'm not God. Of course, I can forgive you, but like Alex said, only God can ultimately forgive you, and only God can ultimately judge you for what you did to me. I'm going to leave that in his hands, and I'm just going to bother with what's my part, which is to trust God with what has happened, even with what you've done and how you've hurt me, which leads us to our second thing. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. Do you notice the doubling of the you? You, you. As for you, you. You. It's almost like a all caps, Y-O-U. You did this. What did they do? They meant evil. Uh, Joseph is speaking not just to what they did on the outside. He's speaking to what must have been true on the inside when they did it. They had evil intentions. And Joseph was willing to face that square in the face. In other words, what this phrase is helping us see is that Joseph is basing everything that he's doing on the basis of God's, God being God in God's place and him not being in God's place. But please don't get it twisted. It's not based on delusions. That Joseph believes that. It's not because Joseph is all his life been kind of minimizing in his own mind what his brothers did to him. 
and how bad of an effect it had on him. No, he knew it. He knew it squarely. And he says the most honest thing that you could possibly say about it. You, as for you, you meant evil. You did me wrong. You expressed hatred. I mean, think about it. Have you ever watched a scary movie? I hate scary movies. Some people like them. I hate them. Uh, but I have watched one before. And there are different kinds of scenes. There's the scene that we all hate where the person looks completely unscared. And they are not scared. Like they're walking down the dark hall and you're like, what in the world? Why are you doing that? And we know that they're not scared, but it's not because they're brave. Why are they not scared? Ignorance. Blissful ignorance. They have, I don't know how they don't know that walking down the dark hallway with that music going. <laughs> how do they not get it? Um, I get it, but they don't. They're blissfully unaware, therefore they're unafraid. And you look at that and there's no heroism in that. I mean, they're delusional. That's why they're not, that's why they're not afraid. But then there's the scenes, at the, usually they come at the end of the horror movie. They're the best ones. It's where the person has worked up courage and stands in the face of the monster. And, you, and it shows their face and they're not afraid anymore. That's what we call heroic bravery. Joseph is proving that his trust in God is the latter, not the former. This is important. And I think there's something here for everybody to think about. When it comes to learning how to trust God in adversity, the way to do it is not by ignoring the hardship. It's not by uh, churching it up and trying to talk about it as if it's not a big deal. Putting on your mask and acting like everything's okay. The great believers of the Bible, the great, we would call them heroes because they trusted God, those great believers were honest, almost to a fault. They looked at their pain and they said what it was and why it was. They told it to God. They told it in the presence of other people. It wasn't that they were being disrespectful to God. It's that they were being honest. Trust based on delusion isn't real trust. Trust based on honest assessment. That's what we mean by the gift of God that is trust. And so for Joseph to be able to say to his brothers, brothers, what you did to me, oh, I can't sugarcoat this. You, you meant evil. It's you who are responsible. You did this. It's not my fault. It's not your dad's fault. It's not anybody's fault. It's your fault. And it was awful inside and out. And yet I'm still standing here before you saying, am I in the place of God? I'm still standing here before you saying, I forgive you. Because my trust is not in you. My trust is not in myself. My trust is not in luck. Or whether the ball might bounce my way next time in life. My trust is in the Lord. As we'll see in just a moment. This is important, especially when we think about the issue of forgiveness. That's one of the ways we learn how to trust God in adversity is we learn how to forgive those who've wronged us. That's a hard thing to do. 
Forgiveness is always costly. One of the ways that we replace honesty for delusion when we come to forgive people is we confuse forgiveness for excusing. Forgiving and excusing are not the same thing. Excusing is a form of delusion. Forgiveness is real. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put it. He says, there's all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology and I will never hold it against you. And everything between us two will be exactly as it was before. But excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it or didn't mean it. You really weren't to blame. Well, if no one, if one was not really to blame, then there's nothing to forgive. Right? In that sense, forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. Listen, this is still C.S. Lewis. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin. The sin that is left over after the excuse. After all allowances have been made. And seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the person who's done it. That and only that is forgiveness. And that we can always have from God if we ask for it. That's how God forgives us. He doesn't say, no big deal. I know that, you know, you couldn't help it. No, he says it straight up. And yet, I'll absorb the costs. I'm willing to reconcile to you. Joseph, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. There's no other way to put it. I have learned to face it honestly. And then thirdly, if you'll look at your bulletin, God meant it for good. Now this, is, this one, this phrase, um, well, I think you can approach this phrase in two ways. Here's the way we tend to approach it. Analytically. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so we start to analyze, but how does that work? Explain to me, preacher, how is that possible? How can God mean one thing in an event, in an event that is evil, and people who are doing that evil mean another? Preacher, that's a contradiction. You can't have God up here ordering evil events for good purposes, and all these evil people down here seeming to get away with those same evil events. That's an analytical way to approach it. And I, and I admit to you, in the analysis, there are things in that statement that are very difficult to understand. I, I agree. Let me propose this. Before you analyze it, at least seek to feel it. Now, I know I'm a Presbyterian and I'm not supposed to say that. Feel it before you analyze it. But I'm telling you that in this case, you should feel it before you analyze it. This is true of all matters related to the sovereignty of God, by the way. Yes, you can analyze these matters, but let me tell you, when you start analyzing the sovereignty of God, you're in over your head. And, and you should be aware of that. Um, the Bible tells you a lot about the sovereignty of God, and you should eat it up. I, I, I do. I love it. However, when you start analyzing, be careful, because you're going to start bumping up against your limits. So first, feel it. And I want to ask you this. If you can feel this tonight, don't you feel it's the most wonderful thing in the world? 
Take, take away all the analysis for a minute, put it to the side, all the debates, and just think about it. What if in a world of evil actors, evil people doing evil things, what if there was a God who in everything meant good for his people? And only good. In every single thing he did, every single thing he thought, every single thing he planned, every single thing he allows. What if he was able to do it while not at the same time ever approving of the evil that was done and always holding accountable those who did the evil and yet God was able because he's God, to mean good through his allowance of those things. Wow. What if you could know that your life wasn't a runaway train without an engineer? What if there was an engineer? And what if that engineer from top to bottom was nothing but good? And thought about you, thoughts, nothing but good. Feel that. And then analyze it. See, I think Joseph had analyzed it. For certain he analyzed this all through the years when he was sitting in jail. He was analyzing. He was thinking, God, what are you doing? How, how are you in control when all this is? I mean, I'm sure he went through all that. We ought to go through all that because it's important. But you know, this is a man at the end of his life who stood there, and I think he felt it more than he understood it. He felt the comfort that everywhere he was, little Joseph, who was abandoned by everybody else, was never once abandoned by God. Not once. And so he was able to walk through an adverse thing with such beauty, with such strength, with such generosity. But God meant it for good. But God meant it for good. Imagine there's an artist who works in weaving tapestries. He's a great artist, and imagine he wants to weave the greatest tapestry he's ever woven. It's going to be beautiful, he says. And so he gets all his servants who help him, and he sends them out to the markets. I want you to buy this kind of thread from this place. You to buy this kind. You to buy this kind. I want you to get these colors, these colors, these colors. Now go and bring them back, and we're going to weave this beautiful tapestry. And what if on the way those servants decided they were jealous of the artist? They were envious. They didn't want him to succeed because they were tired of him getting all the praise and they wanted some of the praise. And instead of going and getting the thread he wanted them to get, they went and got junk thread. They went and got all the most terrible threads they could find. And they said, we're going to show him. And they gather them, they bring them back, and here you go, here's the thread you asked for. Imagine what if that artist was so good I think you know where I'm going with this. What if that artist was so good that he was able to take the junk threads that weren't supposed to be brought to him because that's not what he asked them to do, but they brought those anyway because they were evil in their hearts. What if he was able to take all those junk thread and still weave the most beautiful tapestry you've ever seen? That's what we're talking about. Would that weaver be to blame that they brought him the junk threads? Is it his fault? No. But is it, isn't it so much to his glory that he was able to come up with that artistry, with that junk? And here you have the story of the world. Right there. That's, that's the parable of the world. 
Human beings bring God all the threads that he didn't ask for. (laughs) And yet somehow God, while we mean it for evil, God is able to weave it and mean it for good and to position his people to benefit forever from even the most horrible threads that are brought to him. God meant it for good. Lastly, let's look. At the last thing he says, I will provide for you. I will provide for you. Now, this is kind of, he turns from talking about God and talking about his own personal faith to now talking about how he's actually going to treat them. Verse 21, do not fear. He repeats it again. Same thing he had said in verse 18. I will provide for you and your little ones. It's an amazing thing. Joseph comes out of adversity acting with integrity. I say integrity. Integrity means what? Who's got a definition of integrity? Yeah, same inside as out. That's right. Same inside as out. Meaning same, uh, I act the way I say I believe. That's integrity. I act the way I say that I believe. And Joseph's doing that. He says he believes God's in the place of God. He's not. He says um, he's going to forgive his brothers. He says God meant it for good and he trusts in that. Well, now he shows it. He shows that he actually believes that by saying to his brothers, don't be afraid. I am going to actually now bless you in return for the evil that you've done to me. Now, we also we know that Joseph had already been blessing his brothers. That's why they were still alive. He had been giving them grain and all the rest of the stuff to save them from the famine. But here it seems he's giving them a reassurance. Remember, their dad is dead. They're wondering whether the grain flow is going to get cut off. Are you going to cut us off now that dad is gone? And Joseph says, no, I will continue to provide for you and for your little ones. He has a long-range plan to provide, a long-range plan to be generous with those who were not just stingy, but straight-up evil to him. In other words, when you enter adversity and go through adversity knowing that there is a God and that he means good and that he is in his place and you are not, the chances of you being able to go through that adversity and come out on the other side with a generous heart, like God's heart, are a lot higher. (laughs) I'm not saying it's guaranteed. Suffering does not guarantee that you'll be a better person afterwards. Sometimes it has the opposite effect. But it can and the chances of it doing that are tremendously increased if we learn the lessons of faith along the way, if we learn God is in God's place. Because Joseph knows he's not in God's place. He knows his job, his one and only job, is to use the things that God has given him, him to bless those that God has put in his path. And so instead of thinking, these things are mine, they're not yours, you, you did me wrong, I'm never going to give you anything that's mine because you didn't give me anything that was yours, instead he treats them better than they deserve by giving generously of what is his to bless them. In other words, he treats them the way God had treated him. God had always treated Joseph, and Joseph knew this, he always had treated Joseph better than he deserved. And here at the end of Joseph's life, he is prepared to treat his brothers better than they deserve, far better. Which laid the foundation for the nation of Israel and one day for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, mentioning Jesus Christ is important here. I've told you that um, Joseph is probably one of the clearest 
types of Christ in the whole Bible. And y'all remember what a type is? A type is a person or a place or an event that foretells the coming of something else, the coming of someone else. The Bible's full of types, people, places, events that foreshadow the coming of Jesus. Well, this story is one of the most beautiful, perfect foreshadowings of Jesus. Let's just run back through it again. Am I in the place of God? Uh, When Jesus was facing his enemies in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. In other words, am I in the place of God? Have I not been sent as a man on the mission from God? Must I, shouldn't I do what my father tells me? Am I in God's place? Can I decide? Let your will be done. Very same thing. As for you, you meant evil against me. What did Jesus say to his disciples before he died? What did Jesus say while he was even hanging on the cross about the evil that was done against him? He says first to his disciples, I must be handed over, but woe to that man who hands me over. It would be better for him had he not been born. Jesus was very honest about evil that was done against him. When he hung on the cross, he was honest again. Father, forgive them. For what? They know not what they do. Uh, Sometimes we read that as, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're really innocent. Because they don't know what they're doing. Mm, I don't think that's right. I, I don't think you can call those Roman soldiers doing what they did innocent and not knowing what they're doing in that sense. Here's what I think he meant. They're doing something so evil, they got no idea. They don't have any idea the rupture that they're causing in the fabric of the universe by killing the Son of God. Have mercy on them. Forgive them. Jesus was always honest, like Joseph. God meant it for good. What does the Bible say? But that Jesus went to the cross knowing that God had set before him joy. The joy set before him is what encouraged him to endure suffering. And Jesus endured suffering. Jesus suffered. From the moment he was born into this world to the time he died, he suffered. And yet all along the way, he was uber confident, way more confident even than Joseph, that the purposes of God would be good and would end up not only in his good, but the good of the whole world. And so he pressed on. And then finally, I will provide for you. After the resurrection, when Jesus met with his disciples, the the boys who had run away and denied him, what did he say to them? Receive the Holy Spirit. I will provide for you. Now and forevermore. The reason I bring this up is not just to say, just to have you say, wow, wow, that's cool, story connections. No. The only way Joseph was able to be Joseph is he looked forward to Jesus. (laughs) Joseph needed a Savior. He looked ahead to the Savior that God had promised to his grandfather Abraham, and he rejoiced. And he became just a little bit more like him as he did. And that's why I bring it up. Because for you and I, 
to every day think about our Lord Jesus, to think about how he loves us, to think about how he's shown that in the past, how he shows that right now by providing every day for us from his Holy Spirit, is one of the best ways to prepare yourself to enter suffering as well as one of the best ways to make it through without losing your faith and without losing the opportunity to be made more like Christ through it rather than less like Christ. In a sense, you are what you look at. That's another way to say it. You are what you look at. Paul says if you stare at the glory of God in Jesus, you will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Joseph stared at the person of God and at the promises of God given to Abraham. And he became a man that looks like Jesus, at least in some ways. And I, I, I believe that's the gospel for you too. The gospel for me. By being with Jesus, by staring at him, how he handles adversity, how he did it for us, you too can become a little bit more like him when you have to taste of the same kinds of sufferings that he tasted for you. I hope you see after these 52 weeks how cool it is that the Bible begins with Genesis. I have this little private theory that if someone somehow lost the rest of their Bible and only had Genesis, you could never access the rest of it again. Say that the whole internet died and every book got burned somehow and all you had was one copy of Genesis. That person has what they need to make it to heaven. And that person has what they need to make it through life. Because in a way, every other thing that grows in the Bible comes out of Genesis like trees from a garden. All the seeds are planted in Genesis that grow later in the rest of the Bible, including the gospel of Jesus himself. Hope you've enjoyed it. 52 weeks. A long time. It's been a joy to spend with you.